Paul finishes this section of scripture that I just read, basically saying, um, in the end, we're, we're given over to death. That the, the, that the persecution that we are enduring, it is so intense that one by one, us disciples are being murdered off. But ultimately, this death of our bodies helps us continue to preach the gospel of Jesus and bring life to other people. In the very first sentence, he says, we do not lose heart. Obviously, if he's making the statement, we do not lose heart, there was something that would cause a person to want to lose heart. Things were not all good. Things were not all great. Things were difficult. He goes on to expound on that and says, we are afflicted in every way. We are not crushed though. We are perplexed, but we are not driven to despair. We are persecuted, but we are not forsaken. We are struck down, but not destroyed. One of the major issues of modern day American Christianity is we have believed a lie, a false doctrine that if you have good faith and you believe right and you live right and you pray right, that means God is going to make everything go right in your life. That if you're suffering and you're going through pain and heartache, it's just because your faith isn't right. And there are a couple of passages that have been used to really teach this false doctrine. We're going to look at one in just a moment. But what I want you to see this morning is that really from the beginning to the end, the reality is God's people go through suffering. We all go through suffering. I mean, if Paul would say it, what makes you and I think we're never going to have to go through any of the same stuff? But you know, if you don't know that ahead of time, and you kind of come at this with the wrong attitude and the wrong spirit, and you falsely believe that if you are a good Christian, and you live right, and you do right, and you get enough church in, and you read enough Bible, and you pray enough, that that means you're never going to go through suffering, and God's going to do everything you think God should do. If you really believe that, you won't last very long because it won't happen. You're going to go through hard times. You're going to go through suffering. There's a couple of passages that this uh, kind of wrong mindset comes from, but I'm going to give you the easiest. It's easy to remember, and it's a short, simple statement, and it really encompasses all of the false teachings. John 14, 14. This is Jesus speaking. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Now, there are variations of this passage elsewhere. There are variations of this concept elsewhere, but this short statement sums it up. Anything you ask in Jesus' name, I will do it. That's what he, Jesus said, right? And so we get frustrated at times when we're like, hey, I asked God to do this. I prayed sincerely. I asked it in Jesus' name, and it didn't happen. So the Bible must not be true. I want to demonstrate something, first of all, to show you that even you don't believe what you say. Honestly. 
There's probably not, probably, I would hope not, a single person in this room or listening online that would say you believe if you prayed right now, in Jesus' name, God make a gold brick just appear in my hands, nobody would believe that would happen. There's not a single person in here that would say that's what that scripture means, preacher. Like, see, you already know instinctively that there are limits on what that passage means. The question is, where then is your line? Nobody has any problem with me saying that's a ridiculous prayer to think that, you know, you could just ask in Jesus' name for a gold brick. Everyone's like, yep, I agree with you on that one, Pastor. But you'll notice there are certain things in your life that you've really wanted, and and, and when you didn't get it, you found yourself angry and frustrated, and you're like, well, the Bible must not be true. This passage is found in John Chapter 14 and verse 14, that means it was written by John. John actually provides context to his own passage later in the, gospel, or in the book of 1 John. And I want you to look at how John says the same thing, dealing with the same concept, but he, he kind of adds some context to it in 1 John chapter 5, verses 14 through 15. And this is the confidence that we have toward him. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. John says, let me provide some clarification of what it means to pray in Jesus' name. It's not a magical word. Like you wave the wand over with Jesus' name and then everything you said before has to happen. He provides context and says what it means to pray in Jesus' name. That means that we're praying according to his will, his desires. I would say it this way. To pray in Jesus' name means that the motive of our prayer is to advance his name. That's the motive. That the motive of the prayer is to advance his kingdom. It's not selfish. It's not about me. It's not about my little world. It's about the great and glorious name of Jesus. And it's in that name and for that name that I'm praying. I'm not invoking the name like some magical thing that gets me what I want. I'm praying in that name for his glory. And he goes on to say, according to his will. And here's the the reality, folks. God's ways are higher than our ways. There's a lot we can learn about God through His Word. We can learn about the character of God. We can learn about the nature of God. We can learn how God generally uh, handles situations. We can learn about the patience of God. But we can never know what is the perfect, exact will of God in every situation, dealing with every single person that in every circumstance that we deal with. We don't know. And so when I pray in the promise of of God to answer and to to do what I've asked in Jesus' name, that has to be within the confines of God's will. And what I'm going to show you this morning is it is God's will that you suffer. I know that sounds strange, but if you'll give me 30 minutes, I'm going to prove it by just reading lots of scriptures. 
And so if it is God's will for you to suffer, you can trust it's not God's will to take away all your suffering. No wonder he doesn't take it away every time you ask in Jesus' name. It's not his will. It is, in fact, the will of God that we go through suffering. And the question then is why? What is the purpose of it all? And what I hope to do this morning is really clarify the biblical concept of suffering. Because, folks, we've been lied to, generally speaking, in this country, American Christianity, for the last four decades. We've been told that you speak faith and you believe it and God's going to give you a yacht. You just come to church a little bit and turn your heart to God. He's going to pay all your bills. You're never going to suffer. You're never going to, he's going to heal every ailment you ever have. Once upon a time, this was so perverse and so gross that teachers who had thousands following them would actually blame you saying you don't have faith. That's the reason you're sick. That's the reason you died. You didn't have faith. It's nonsense. It's total, complete craziness, and it's not biblical. The false prophet says that good faith always leads to good fortune. It's not true. Here's what Job said. Man that is born of a woman is a few days and full of trouble. Here's what the psalmist said. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. That's Psalm 34, 19. I told you what Paul said. We're troubled on every side. Jesus said in the world you're going to have tribulation. These people did not name it and claim it. I think about Paul's thorn in the flesh. Joseph, his slavery in Egypt. Moses for decades wandering in the wilderness. Jesus and his walk to the cross ultimately being Killed there for our sake. And what I see is the Bible from the beginning to the end teaches us that the righteous will suffer. So, four things I want us to learn this morning about suffering from a biblical perspective. Number one, there is a reason for suffering. There is a reason for suffering. There are a couple of passages that we could have used this morning. uh, But we're going to look at Romans 5 verses 3 through 4. James chapter 1 tells us something very similar. Romans chapter 5, verses 3 through 4. We're going to read the first few words and I'm going to take it down. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Go ahead and take that down. I want you to hear that statement. I want it to resonate with you before we get into the rest of this message. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. We rejoice in our sufferings. Would you agree this is such a different mindset and a different attitude than what we've been trained to have? It is so different and so foreign that most of us, when we read that, we just skip over that. That's like, well, that's a, you ever have Bible verses that you're kind of like, well, that doesn't sound right to me. Surely that's not what it means. You just keep going. Because you've already decided in your own mind, in your own heart, what you believe about something. God doesn't ever want us to suffer. And so uh, don't even know what he means there. Let's just keep on reading. No, we rejoice in sufferings. Paul had a very, 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 very different attitude about suffering than the modern day church. He saw it differently. Why? I hope this morning the Holy Spirit will help us discover that 
and embrace it the same way. I hope that when we're done, we can truly say we rejoice in our sufferings. Now, let's see why. Knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. There is something that suffering produces. Now listen to me here. That cannot be produced without suffering. And according to God, it's character, which leads to hope. Okay. I want to talk about character for just a moment. It is something that is beginning to lack in our country. It's lacking in a lot of different areas. It's not, it's not, a, it's not a people group. It's, the character is, is nothing like it used to be. And I'm going to tell you one of the reasons. We are spoiled. We don't have to wait on anything. The entitlement mentality is the opposite of somebody with character. And we are in an entitlement mentality society. Now, I want to speak about how this applies to our children. One of the horrifying things that is happening in our culture is that children, young people, uh, people 25 and under, really across the board, have become, generally speaking, by the masses, incredibly disrespectful, lacking character, no respect for authority. Notice that God says one of the things that's connected is that the hardship, the suffering, it produces, now look at this word, endurance. You know what endurance means? It means pushing through and waiting for the result. That's what it means. But we're raising an entire generation. They don't have to wait on anything. They get what they want, when they want, how they want. And there's an expectation that I should get what I want, when I want, how I want. We have become so blessed in this country that now we can give our kids everything we didn't have when we were kids. And there's no waiting, there's no enduring, there's no working to obtain it. And then we look around and we're like, where's the character in these kids? Well, God said, you can't have character without enduring some things. And few things bring about endurance more than suffering. Now, the same thing has happened in modern day Christianity. We as Christians, we want blessed now. That's what we want right now. We want, we want immediate results. And God says, no, I don't work that way. And I might never give you the gold you think you deserve. My heart breaks when I look at some of the nonsense that's come out of, of, of pulpits in the last 10, 15, 20 years. Paul warned that in the end, 
People would heap to themselves teachers. People with itching ears would heap to themselves teachers that would tell them what they want. Now listen carefully what I'm about to say. I'm not against megachurches. We see that nearly 3,000 people were added to the church, the first church, in Acts chapter 2, folks. So that's a megachurch. So I'm not against megachurches. This is, I'm not making a blanket statement about all churches that have thousands of people. But I will tell you this. Most of them have thousands of people because they're not actually teaching the truth that you're going to have to suffer. They're telling people what you want to hear. Good faith equals good fortune. You do this, 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 and this, everything's always going to be good. God's never, you're never going to have to go through hard times. Just, you know, you, you just, just hang in there a little bit longer and your miracle's right around the corner. This is our year of God's blessing. This is our year of God's favor. And it's producing Christians without character. And I hate to say that, but it's just true. There's a church, and I'm not going to say it by name because I kind of like the pastor. I confess before you and before God, he has helped me. Pastor's one of the largest churches in the country. And recently, a new uh, church plant in a certain area was taking place. And a guy that I know, who had been part of another one of these churches for three years, faithfully committed, open, homosexual man, told me that when this new church plant started, he was going to be filing for a position to be one of the leaders there. Now here's what's mind-blowing. When you read the doctrines and the, the doctrinal statement of this church, they won't be able to hire the man. They are a fairly conservative, Bible-believing group of people, so they say. Here's the question. How does an openly gay, homosexual man go to the church for three years and still believe he could get hired as leadership? Because what's tucked away back in the doctrinal corner of what they say they believe never actually makes it to the stage because they don't want to offend anybody. They're only going to teach and only going to preach that which makes sure you feel good after you hear it. And of this particular church, again, I'm not trying to be mean-spirited. I'm very careful not to even mention what it is or any names. Honest observation. I know multitudes of people that attend this church. I'm not being mean-spirited. I'm just telling you my God's honest discernment. The incredible lion's share of them have very little Christian character. And this is what happens in a culture where we are lied to about real Christianity. And we never want to endure hardship and we never want to go through anything difficult. There is a reason for suffering. It produces perseverance and character and character produces hope. The next thing I want us to learn about suffering this morning is that the, there is a revelation that comes through suffering. There are things God reveals to us about himself that we would never learn otherwise. 
In fact, if you ever do a study on the names of God, I'm not going to go through them all. I'm going to give you a few passages here in a moment. But if you ever want to do a study on the names of God, when God revealed himself as a certain name, it'll be mind-blowing to you how many of them are connected to tragedy. That it was on the heels of tragedy, or it was God's answer to tragedy, where God said, now you're going to know me in a way you did not know me before. Because there are some things that God gives us revelation about who he is through suffering. I'm going to give you some examples. In Genesis 22, before I put that up, I want to provide the context of each of these. I did it in reverse last time. In Genesis chapter 22, did I have the right verse last time? Okay. In Genesis chapter 22, Abraham, his whole life, he's waited on the promise. The promise of Isaac. And he finally gets his son Isaac. The one to whom God said through him is going to come a great nation. Isaac is still like 12, 13 years old. He has not had any, he's not married, hasn't had any children yet. And God says, I want you to sacrifice your son. Abraham has come to a place in his life where he has matured such, to a such a great degree in his faith. I'm going to deal with another reason why here in a bit. But he gets to the place, he's like, I don't understand it all, God. I've been through so much suffering in my life. And the one thing I know is you've been true to it all. And every time I've ever tried to do it your, my way, I messed things up. And so God, the answer is yes. He just obeyed. That same day, he got all of his stuff. He takes his son up the mountain. And if you know the story, they get all the way up. And his, the son's like, Dad... We got the wood for the sacrifice to, to build the fire and the altar, but where is the sacrifice? And you know the story. Eventually, Abraham says, it's you, son. Lays him on the altar, goes to raise his hand, and God speaks from heaven and says, Abraham, Abraham, I see that you have not withheld your only son from me. Do not slay the lad. And over in the, the, the thicket was a ram caught by its horns that God had provided for that sacrifice. With that in mind, I want you to read Genesis twenty two fourteen. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. The Lord will provide is the English translation of the term Jehovah Jireh. It is literally a name of God. And it was in that place of complete trust, one of the most difficult moments of Abraham's life, really the first time in his life he completely and totally and fully obeyed. When you study the life of Abraham, this was it. This was the moment. And it was there in that place of not understanding, just having to trust God, that God said, I'm going to reveal myself to you in a way you didn't know me before. What you thought was about to happen, that's not what's going to happen. I am the God who provides. Next, in 1 Samuel chapter 7 and verse 12. I'll go ahead and put the text up because I don't have it in my notes. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shin and called his name Ebenezer. For he said, till now the Lord has helped us. So what's happened right here? is before this moment, Eli and Eli's sons, they were the priests, had died. 
Eli had wickedly allowed his wicked sons to make a mockery of the priesthood. They were doing things that should not be spoken and abusing their power. They are ultimately killed. The Ark of the Covenant, which is housed the power and presence of God temporarily, it was stolen. Eli hears that it's gone, falls off the back of his chair and dies. And the Philistines make a mockery of Israel. But if you follow the story, the Ark, it goes from Ashdod to Gath to Ekron and ultimately to kirath Jerium. You know why? Because everywhere it went, God brought pain and sorrow and suffering to the people that were trying to house it. Because it wasn't theirs to have. Eventually the Philistines are like, get this thing out of here. Send it to our neighbors. The neighbors are like, we'll take it. And then they're like, no, this is bad news for our town. Send it to them. Finally, they're like, give it back to Israel. But understand, Israel didn't do anything to get it back. And here we have a name of God. So Samuel is celebrating that the Ark of the Covenant has been returned. And he says, he named the place Ebenezer. Here's what it literally means. By God's help, we have come this far. I know that's a long statement for one word, but that's what the word means. By God's help, we have come this far. And God made himself known to Israel through the pain and through the shame that it all happened because of their sin and their rebellion and because of the sin of the priesthood. Yes, there were consequences, but when it was all said and done, the ark was returned and the people said, we have come this far by the help of God. Judges chapter 6, verse 24. Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, the Lord is peace. To this day it stands at Oprah, which belongs to the Abzerites. The Lord is peace. That's the English translation of Jehovah Shalom. It's a name of God. Now here's what's really significant. Gideon builds this altar in Judges chapter 6. You know what we learn before Judges chapter 6? We learn that, the, it, that Israel is being ravaged by her enemies. That there is no answer, that there's no solution. And God, using an angel, shows up to Gideon and says to Gideon, I'm going to use you to lead these people out of captivity. That's what I'm going to do. And Gideon says, but like I'm the least of my family, who is the least of my clan, which is the least of the clans. You know the story. And you know what eventually happens is a, a pretty good chunk of people come and God says to, to Gideon, no, cut her down. Takes him down to a very small short of men and this, a, a very small group of men who don't actually have to fight. God takes them out, has a, an amazing plan and strategy, and in the end, the enemy ends up destroying itself. But here's the thing. All that happens after Judges chapter 6. He doesn't know the plan. In Judges chapter 6, here's all that's happened. The people are still being ravaged by their enemy. 
But God has showed up and said, I'm going to use you, Gideon. And Gideon's like, I'm not real sure about this. But he builds an altar to God and says this, the Lord is peace. Even in the midst of Israel being ravaged by her enemies, even while they're waiting for a strategy from God, waiting on God to bring deliverance, even then, in that place, we get the revelation that God is peace, even in the midst of our darkest storms, when it seems like there is no way out, God is there, God sees us, and He is Jehovah Shalom, the God of peace trying to tell you this morning there are certain ways that God reveals himself to us that we would never know if it weren't through the suffering that we go through I got to move this morning so I'm just going to give you the reference I'm not going to read it in Genesis 17 1 uh, God makes himself known to Abram as the almighty God Abraham's getting ready to go through really some bad stages of his life where he goes in and out of trusting God. He lies about who his wife is twice. Says that it's his sister because he's afraid for his own life. Eventually he takes matters into his own hand because he's thinking, well, God's not going to come fulfill this promise. And so ends up having a son out of wedlock with the handmaid. He makes a lot of mistakes. And all the way back in Genesis 17, God revealed himself to him as, listen, I am God Almighty. That means he is the all-sufficient one. God says, there's nothing that I need from you to accomplish my purpose. I don't need your strength. I have enough strength. I don't need your wisdom. I have enough wisdom. I don't need your planning. I'm the one who makes the plans. I am all-sufficient, God Almighty. Most children of God who know God best will stand and testify that it was through struggles and through suffering that they really came to know God in a deeper way. The third thing I want us to notice this morning is what I will call the requirement of suffering. There is a requirement of suffering. Acts 19, or excuse me, Acts 9, verses 15 through 16. We're going to read verse 15 and then pull it down. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Go ahead and pull that down. So this is about Saul before he became known as the great apostle Paul. Acts chapter 9 records Saul's conversion experience. And here's what it says. He's going to carry my name before the Gentiles, before kings, and before Israel. That's everybody. That's quite an assignment. This guy right here is going to be used to spread the gospel in a way that might be larger than any other person ever just to spread the gospel. I'm going to send him to the Gentiles. I'm going to send him to, the, to, the, to, the, to Israel. I'm going to send him to kings. I mean, that, if that's plural, little k. That means he's going to come in front of, uh, of governors. He's going to come in front of mayors. He's going to come in front of you know, people that rule. He's going to come in front of the Caesars. Who wants that job? What an honorable thing to do. I want that job. It's what I want to do with my life. I want that to be said of me. 
Let's look at the next verse. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Can you see how those verses are married? I'm going to make a statement here. It's going to take some time to process. You have to think on it and meditate on it later. I would argue that the degree to which you are actually used of God is tied to the degree to which you're willing to suffer for Him. And this is why most of us in America, we are not willing to suffer. We want to tithe as little as we have to, go to church as little as we have to, serve as little as we have to. Just what is the answer? How little do I have to do so that I can still get God's gifts? We tend to see God as some cosmic Santa Claus in the sky that we hope that if we just please him enough, he's going to give us whatever presents we ask for. It is so repulsive when we consider what Jesus did for us that we would want to somehow serve in <laughs> that way. I mean, if he was willing to die for me and, and go through the brutal and horrendous torture and death that he went through so that he could save a wicked sinner like me, how much more should I serve him? Why should the question be, how little do I have to do so that he blesses me? Like, what happened to us? What happened to Christianity? And I'll say it again. The degree to which we are used of God is connected to the degree of which we are willing to suffer. There was no man that ever was used of God more than Jesus. And there was no man who ever suffered more than he did. And we look at Paul and we see the connection here. I'm going to use him greatly. I am going to use him like nobody else. But he also must suffer many things. And when we've been conditioned to believe the goal of God is to keep us from suffering. And to make everything happy and make everything fun. And we never have to go through hardship. And we never have to endure anything. We are quick to give up, to refuse to endure when hardship comes. And we, we, for the most part, become ineffective in our Christian witness. Are you willing to suffer? Are you willing to sacrifice? Can you see this morning it is the will of God for his sons and daughters to experience suffering? Now here's the danger of suffering. If you have the wrong attitude about it, you'll turn away. If you've been lied to and you believe the lie, that if you serve God and you love God and you do things right, you're always going to be blessed, that's not going to happen. You're not always going to be blessed with earthly things, with earthly wealth, with temporary pleasures. You're not going to be blessed with those things. God's never promised that. God's blessings are deeper than the things that fade away and that are here today and perish tomorrow. But if you believe that lie, you'll be quick to turn your back on God and walk out the church when you don't get everything you want. You'll be like so many Christians who are going to pick up their toys and go home. I'm going to teach God a lesson. You will too give me what I want if I go to church. 
This is the attitude of modern-day American Christianity, folks. Look what Paul said about it to the, Thessalon uh, the church in Thessalonica. 1 Thessalonians 3, verses 1 through 5. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker, in the gospel of Christ to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. Did you know the Bible says that if you're a child of God, you are destined for afflictions? For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass. And just as you know, for this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. Did you know the Bible says that we are destined for afflictions? It's amazing how you go to that, the, the one simple verse I read at the beginning where Jesus said, if you ask in my name, you'll get it. And, and that's the one thing that, that we just focus on, focus on, focus on. And, and, we, and we think that somehow we're not going to be afflicted. We're not going to suffer. It is so unbiblical, folks. Paul said, we kept on telling you, like we warned you beforehand. Why? So that when it did happen, you wouldn't be surprised. You wouldn't be confused. But I want you to note how he finishes that statement because it's very important. He says, I, I was afraid that the tempter would have come and tempted some of you to walk out on God. That's what, that's, he says, that's what I was afraid of. We learned something here about the tempter. That's Satan, folks. We learned that he knows that when we are going through hardship and hard times, is the best time to come in and tempt us and say, oh, well, where's your God at now? Hmm, really pays to be a Christian, doesn't it? I thought if you were God's child, you wouldn't have to go through this suffering. Actually, Satan didn't think that at all. He's lying to you. He knew you would. But he knew you thought you wouldn't have to go through suffering. As I've said many times, especially in this culture, because we've been lied to growing up. We've been told you wouldn't. We've been told that good faith equals good fortune. We've been told God doesn't, you know, you're God's children. He would never want you to go through hardships. What kind of a horrible father wants that for his kids? You want your children to be weak? Pandered little pansies? That don't know how to endure hardship? Is that what a good father wants? No, it's not. Not at all. Good father wants to raise his children where they're capable of facing difficulty and not buckling. You know how you do that? You face difficulty. And then you face more difficulty. And then you face more difficulty. The tempter comes to us in those moments where we are suffering because he knows that is when we are highly likely 
to be confused and to say, fine, I'm out of here. What's, what's the point? Why do it at all? And all I can do is plead with you, brothers and sisters. We've got to know the word and we've got to know we were destined for affliction. When God told us that we get whatever we ask in his name and according to his will, he would grant us, you need to understand he's already explained to us that part of his will is that we grow through suffering. So you can't ask God to remove it all. Instead, you have to recognize he's made the decision to be there with us through it all. That's the promise. He said, I will never leave you or forsake you. That's the promise. He didn't say, I'll never let you go through hardship. I'll never let you go through affliction. I'll never let you die. I'll never let you get sick. I'll never let people that you, that, that you love and care for die. He never promised that. He said, I will be with you through it all. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 20 through 21. For what credit is it when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, if you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. It doesn't matter if you're listening to Jesus teach. It doesn't matter if you're listening to Paul teach. It doesn't matter if you're listening to Peter teach. It doesn't matter if you're listening to John teach. There was this constant theme that the true followers of Christ endure hardship. The last thing I want us to look at this morning is that one day there will be a rest from suffering. But you've got to get to the back of your Bible to find that. <laughs> Revelation 21, verses 1 through 4. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. This is our hope. This is where we will never suffer again. This is where the promise that we will never suffer again is. Heaven, folks. And you will find that the first century church, it had a, it had a mind for heaven. Their eyes were on heaven. It wasn't, it wasn't God bringing, you know, making earth so nice and flowery and great that everyone's like, oh, I want your life. In fact, they went through hardship and suffering and many of them were persecuted and many of them were martyred. But it was the peace that they lived with. It was the, the, the joy that they lived with. It was the light of Christ that shone through them that gave them such a powerful testimony even in the face of affliction. This is God's will for the church. And our promise of complete peace and, 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 and no more death and suffering, it's in the future. 
Here's what that verse also, these verses also tell us in Revelation 21 through 1 through 4. Here's what it says. When I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away until the new heaven and the new earth come. We're going to deal with hardship. It says the former things have passed away. Until that happens, there will be death. There will be mourning. There will be crying. There will be pain. And think about it, folks. This is the promise to the church. Because there certainly will be crying and pain and mourning and sorrow for the lost, for the unsaved. But for those who are saved, there's coming a day when we will no longer endure those things. Go ahead and ask our worship team if you guys would get in place. I want to close with a story that I did not use at the first service. But we will deal with death, sorrow, sickness, pain. And we're never going to be able to understand it all. A few years back, um, the Aryan family had a baby, Ezekiel, that many of you know, who was born with a rare syndrome that ultimately only allowed him to live 10 months. Was it 10 months? Eight and a half months. Many of you joined us in praying for that baby. And... Um, I really believed that possibly he was going to be healed. I have a picture of me holding baby Ezekiel on my uh, the desk area that I work at my house. It's the only picture. I don't have a picture of my family on there. I don't have a picture of any of you on there. It's the only picture. It's a picture of me holding Ezekiel. I just shared this with my wife recently. The reason I keep that picture is just because for me, it's a reminder of what I was not able to do. And it makes me want to try harder. It makes me want to be a better pastor. It makes me want to be more. But I also have to come to grips with, I don't know the will of God. Here's what I know. I know that I had faith that that baby was going to be healed. And you want to know how I know? Because I was surprised when he wasn't. That's always a good indicator. If you have faith for something and it doesn't happen, and you're like, well, I must not have had faith. Well, if you're shocked it didn't happen, you had faith. Trust me, you had faith of a mustard seed if you're confused on why God didn't answer your prayer because you expected it to happen. That's proof you had faith. And here's, here's what I want to say about this, this whole situation. I don't know why your baby died. I don't believe, I'm not saying necessarily it was the will of God that, that your baby died the way your baby died. Things happen in a fallen world, and this is what the Bible teaches us, that so long as we live in a fallen world, we will be touched by the fallen world. We are not exempt from it. 
And I watched in Honduras, I watched us take over some equipment, a wheelchair to a handicapped boy that came from Ezekiel. And I watched, I watched a moment that changed another family's life. And I'm not saying God brought Ezekiel into the world so that somebody could get a free wheelchair. I, I pray you understand my heart. All I'm saying is God has a way of doing things. We just never know what's happening. God has a way of taking the hard things we go through and connecting us to people we would never be connected to otherwise so that at the end of it all, somehow we can lift up his name through it all. And it doesn't make it easy. It doesn't make it fun. When Paul says we rejoice in our suffering, he doesn't mean that the suffering itself is fun. He says, for we know what it will produce. He doesn't say the pain itself is enjoyable. He says, we've just been doing this long enough that we know our God is with us through it all. And when it's all said and done, we come out stronger. We've endured. We've got more character. Our hope is secured in where it should be in the heaven that is to come. And it's worth it all. This is why God's children suffer. 